Hello and welcome. This is Dr. Stuart Tully for History 302. And today we're going to be talking about pro wrestling. Today we're going to be talking about pro wrestling. As you can see from the title card, it's going to be from like 1800 something to about 2000. Those are very rough dates. I will be focusing most on the 90s, but there is other stuff about pro wrestling that you might want to know. So with that said, let's go ahead. So if you go uh, if you go over one side, you're going to see some examples of super early professional wrestling. Super early professional wrestling. Um, it's been around in some form or fashion in America since forever. Um, it's very early in America. These type of strongman contests are, are feats of strength, this sort of idea. It's very old in America. Um Really starting as carnival carnival sideshow attractions though carnival sideshow attractions. Think of somebody like P.T. Barnum. Uh, P.T. Barnum is actually a very good predecessor for uh, professional wrestling, uh, just with the, the showmanship of it, the kind of the carny nature of it all, uh, and kind of the blurring of reality, blurring of reality. And I, I should mention early on. Wrestling in this vein was semi-legit. It's semi-legit in the sense of, you know, a strongman contest, like you know, or a strongman, you know, who who could who could lift this up more, or bare knuckle boxing fights, you know, you know, those are legitimate fights, legitimate boxing fights, and they do have these for wrestling, or, or you know, can you beat this beefy person? Like you know, this is our this is our champion, the the beefy champion. Uh, can you beat him? You know that sort of shtick, and you actually have to wrestle him, and he'll he'll probably beat you because he is a he is a real wrestler. Mainly linked to things like state fairs. Mainly linked to things like uh, I, I keep going with P.T. Barnum, but be, the, the P.T. Barnum style, you know, carnival, uh, circusy type attraction. But it's not really wrestlers against each other, not too much. I mean, yes, we do have professional fights. Uh, generally, something like boxing was seen as more um, was more popular. Bare knuckle boxing, even, or an eye gouging contest. You do have some, you know, real wrestlers fighting each other. But um, like I said, mainly like the state fair. It's not too, super big uh, until you get to about the 1930s or so. In the 1930s or so, when you get to the Depression, things start changing with wrestling. Things start changing with wrestling. Um, more personas come about of, of the individual fighters. That also comes about with boxing, this idea that, I mean, I've mentioned a million times, a shift between character to personality. This is a big part of it where it's not just enough you, you beat somebody or you're a strong person. It's how you do it, how you talk about it, that sort of shtick. Uh, flashier moves start coming around as well. Flashier moves start coming about as well. Basically, instead of doing a basic wrestling move, maybe you'll do like a suplex, maybe something that looks more visual stunning. And, of course, enable in order to do that, you're going to need to have a rigged match. Um, before this time, they were generally legit sporting competitions. They were legit sporting com- sporting competitions. Uh, the problem with a legit sporting competition is you're not always guaranteed a very interesting result. Um, you know, sometimes athletes have a really bad day. Uh, you know, in a real fight, it could go very quick. Uh, there's a reason that, like, for instance, the UFC or boxing cards, uh, they're not just one fight. They're usually several fights. I remember growing up, um, people buying the various Tyson fights. And inevitably, Mike Tyson would, you know, it would be like 30 seconds and Mike Tyson would knock him out and you've just spent $90 for this pay-per-view sort of shtick. Absolutely. And so to make sure that people feel that they have got their money out of it, got their money from it, they start doing things like rigging the matches. Uh, this is not a spoiler to tell you that professional wrestling is rigged. Uh, professional wrestling, as, as far as you know it, has always been rigged. 
Uh, you have never seen a real professional wrestling competition that was not fake or not uh, predetermined. I hate to use the word fake because, uh, you know, these are real athletes who are really doing things. You know, if a 300-pound guy jumps on top of you, um, even if he's not actually trying to kill you or beat you up, it's going to hurt. You know, to lift up somebody that heavy, you, you do legitimately have to have strength. And also, I cannot reiterate the carny roots deep enough. Uh, every part of professional wrestling is showmanship. It's carny. It's P.T. Barnum. It's a sucker is born every minute. It's kind to, you know, show a fake reality, make a better reality than the real reality. That is 100% what professional wrestling is. Now, before we get going, there are a couple of terms I would like you to know when we talk about professional wrestling. Professional wrestling has its own language. There's, there's a lot of uh, lingo, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of jargon that is used in professional wrestling. And some of these terms, I might slip into them when I talk about various wrestlers, but one in particular I think is very key for understanding not just professional wrestling, but honestly, America itself. I'll go with the easy terms first. Uh, face. A face is basically a good guy wrestler. A good guy wrestler is a face. It's a shortened form of baby face. The idea that the good guy wrestler, the hero wrestler, they're typically called the face. So the good guy wrestler, they're the one that doesn't cheat. They're the one that, you know, that's the, the you know, he's, he's not going to, like, be poking people in the eye when the ref isn't looking. They're the ones who are the good guy wrestler. They're generally called faces. Faces fight against heels. Uh, heel is a bad guy wrestler. Heels do dastardly things. You know, they use weapons. Uh, they cheat to win, that sort of shtick. That is called a heel wrestler. Uh, two other terms you might want to know is a work and a shoot. Um, a work is... Anything done that's fake. Anything done that's fake in wrestling, anything that's predetermined, anything that's rigged, I hate using the word fake, but anything that's predetermined, anything that is scripted is called a work. It's called a work because you are working the crowd. You're working the crowd, and when you work the crowd, you're getting to do what you want. Now, occasionally, a shoot might happen. A shoot is what happens when something happens unscripted or, or for real. Uh, if you talk to professional wrestlers, sometimes they talk about, like, yeah, he shoot, he, you know, he shot punch me. It also turned into a shoot fight, which means you know we were faking until the guy actually punched me in the mouth and it really hurt, and then I really started fighting him. Hear this, but I think the most in, and also another term I don't have there is going over. I might say that uh, going over means that you win. Going over means is the one like it went, goes over well with the audience. Uh, that means you win. That means you support yourself in front of the audience. But I think the most important term, the term that I want us to have discussions about in class. The term that I really think is deep into just American society and identity is that top term of kayfabe. 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 If you understand kayfabe, you will understand America. Kayfabe is the reality within the ring. I'll repeat that. Kayfabe is the reality within the ring. It's a willing suspension of disbelief. It's something that the audience knows, you know, they're watching something and that the reality within the ring is different than the reality of it itself. You know, they understand that these wrestlers are using things like fake names. They're understanding that, you know, doing a, a, a finishing move may not actually cripple somebody like they say it does, or that the loser may not actually leave town, that sort of shtick. For wrestlers, keeping kayfabe for the longest time is something that they don't break. For the longest time, you know, face and heel wrestlers, they wouldn't ride together afterwards, even though they might be friends, because lest they get seen on the road together and people might be like, oh, this may not be real. Uh, for the longest time, wrestlers keep kayfabe. 
Um, I've read interviews with various wrestlers. There's one in particular I'll talk about later, uh, Dusty Rhodes. Um, his son even said he never broke kayfabe, even at home. He was like, you know, even though, you know, it's my mom and, and my dad and like he's my dad. And, you know, I asked him what's happening at the wrestling shows. He never broke kayfabe. He always pretended that it was real. Kayfabe goes over a lot in American society. I, I, I Seriously, if you understand kayfabe, you understand America. This assumed reality, this reality within the ring that people may know is fake, but they may not know it's fake. And then sometimes it doesn't even really matter if it is or it isn't. Something like Disney World. Like, you know, when you go to Disney World, uh, you're not seeing the real Mickey Mouse. You're, you're seeing somebody in a suit. But you can pretend with the reality of the ring, this kind of imagined community, that no, 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 that is the real Mickey Mouse. You know, the, the, the teenager in the Mickey Mouse suit at Disney World in kayfabe is the real Mickey Mouse. Absolutely. So now that we know the languages, uh, feel free to talk about them when we discuss it in class. Let's talk about the territories. Because independent promotions do start coming around. Uh, independent promotions do start coming around. And very early, they start fighting with each other. For realsies, not in kayfabe. They start really getting mad at each other, particularly the promoters, mainly because of poaching of talent. Mainly because of poaching of talent. Stealing talent. Um, these promoters were very known to, like, you know, take territories from other... Sorry, take wrestlers from other people, try to run the same towns. They might try to run them out, that sort of shtick. Also, it also becomes pretty common during this time period. We're talking like in the 40s, 40s and 30s. I'd have like a small stable of talent. Basically have a small group of wrestlers so you can develop stories over time. You know, the idea that, you know, you're going to be running the same towns over and over. Maybe you have like a good slate of wrestlers. You can build some stories over time, hoping to build some bigger crowds. You know, a crowd might come more to see a wrestler they know, oh, he doesn't like that other guy. So it's going to be a really good fight versus it's a rando versus another rando. Now, I should mention, this is not really televised. This is pre-television whenever this is coming about. So in 1948, I should say, many of these territories come together to form the National Wrestling Alliance or the NWA. Uh, the NWA, if you look at there, those are, it's ever-changing, ever-in-flux, but those are the basic territories of the NWA. Uh, you can see, you know, who's running in the various territories. Uh, Mid-South is most common around here. Uh, based mainly in New Orleans. Also, you have Tri-State and Tulsa. Uh, it's it's constantly moving, like who's in charge of what. Um, you know, But they in general, they do cooperate together. In general, they do cooperate with each other. Uh, they also agree to share talent. They agree to share talent. So like the champion of one territory might go somewhere else, or if you have somebody, you might do a trade, almost like a basketball team or something. And most importantly, they agree not to mess with each other's territories. They agree that, look, you know, we're going to set out the territories. You don't run my cities. I don't promote in your cities. And also they say, maybe we can have like a bigger champion. Maybe we have like one champion, the NWA champion, who's like the champion of everything that could be used as a bigger draw for promotions. The idea that like, you know, you're running the same towns over and over, but you know what? We're going to bring in the, uh, the NWA champion every once in a while. You know, whoever's the NWA champion tours around the country is a much bigger draw. Absolutely. Now, wrestling is helped immensely by television. I cannot iterate that enough. Our early television is very wrestling centric. Uh, TV needs more content. And guess what? These wrestling shows were more than happy to provide it. If you talk about early people who watch television, they're watching a ton of wrestling. Wrestling is on all the time in TV. 
And, and as because it gets on television, it's a much smaller screen. Um, you know, you're, you're going to have to play even bigger. And so the characters get more and more and more flamboyant. They get much more flamboyant, uh, much broader characters, uh, much more of the wrestling characters we know before. Beforehand, it might just be, you know, a really strong guy. Uh, the, probably the best example of the first real gimmick wrestler, if you want to call it that, if you go over one slide, you'll see Gorgeous George. Uh, Gorgeous George, who does kind of play with elements of uh, you know masculinity and femininity. Uh, he's not seen as gay or anything. Um, however, he's like, I'm the prettiest wrestler who ever lived. I'm so beautiful, you can't touch me. He's definitely a heel wrestler. He is 100% a heel wrestler. He is the most heel wrestler to ever do a heel wrestler gimmick ever. This idea that you know he's a he's a floppish he's a foppish dante who you know oh he he gets very prissy and he comes out in these fancy robes and like you know he, he does all these things like you know his interviews where he's like oh I always have fresh roses and whatnot I'm the most beautiful person alive and I can beat you up that sort of shtick altogether and so of course audiences want to come to watch him get beat up you know you want to pay money for gorgeous George to I don't know get his Get his uh, get his fancy robe ripped, or you know, get get his face beaten in. He's got his blonde curls. He always like, oh, don't punch me in the hair. Uh, typical bad guy wrestler shtick. Very very well known. Um, you can click on the YouTube video. There should be a wrestling match of Gorgeous George where he gets introduced into the ring. Very much playing up to the crowd, playing up this very much you know bad guy, but not just like a evil bad guy, but like an annoying bad guy. You can't wait to get beat up. Um, another one that's early popular one is Haystacks Calhoun. Uh, Haystacks Calhoun is a very large man, as you can tell. He's like six foot something, 400 and something. Um, he's the first of our really big, big, big guy professional wrestlers on TV. Um, he actually dies fairly young. It's actually, actually kind of sad. Uh, but this idea that he uh, his shtick is that he's a country boy. You know, he lifts the haystacks and he fights as an overall. So that's that sort of shtick behind it. Another really good example. In fact, I, I like these two very much. Uh, classy Freddy Blassie, who's on the left, and George the Animal Steel, who's, sorry, Classy Freddy Blassie is on the right in the pink shirt, and George the Animal Steel is on the left, um, who's very hairy. Um, classy Freddy Blassie is the first pro wrestling manager, and, and that's another thing that comes about during television. Not only do you have, like, the wrestler themselves, but sometimes they can't talk very well. You know, they're, they're not just acting in the ring, but sometimes they have to act in person. And so it wasn't uncommon to get a person to act as the mouthpiece to theoretically be the manager of this wrestler to theoretically be the manager of this wrestler classy freddie blassie is the classic example he is not tied to any one wrestler he is a heel manager so basically he like you know he talks about uh, how how strong his people are and how everybody else is a bunch of weaklings i believe that classy freddie blassie was the first one to ever use the term uh, pencil neck geek to talk about, uh, it was either him or the Grand Wizard to talk about his opponents. Uh, you know, you 98-pound weakling, that sort of shtick. Also known for his attire. Uh, not not like the foppish dandy that um, that gorgeous George was. He doesn't really play with, like, elements of femininity or whatever. However, he is playing like, up, like oh, I'm a fashion plate. I'm always so nicely dressed. Uh, George the Animal Steel, he was kind of a tweener. He could be both a face or a heel, depending on the promotion or the time. Generally, he did work heel, though. Um, his whole shtick was like he was like an animal because he was a he was a very hairy man, as you can tell from the picture. And so his whole shtick was like he'd run around with like his his hand up and like acting like a gorilla almost type person, like a monkey person. Uh, he wouldn't talk. He would like lick the turnbuckle, that sort of shtick behind that. So, of course, you get flat, classy Freddie Blassie as his mouthpiece. Crazy George Animal Steel is running around licking things. 
And, uh, yeah, the ratings do exceptionally well. The ratings do exceptionally well for professional wrestling because it's pretty much the only, like, regular weekly episodic television going on during this time period. Now, you might be wondering, wait a minute, okay, hold on. You said that professional wrestling was very popular with television and most uh, wrestling in this time period was divided by territory. I bet the guy who ran the New York Territory, where all the early television was, I bet he was cleaning up. And you would be absolutely correct. You would be absolutely correct. If you go over one slide, you will see Vincent J. McMahon. The name should sound familiar if you know anything about professional wrestling. I don't know who the guy on the right is, but the guy on the left is Vincent J. McMahon. Uh, He runs the New York Territory. Uh, He runs the New York Territory during the 60s, and he brings in gangbusters ratings. Remember, he is the guy he is dealt with in, um, he's dealing with the New York Territory. Uh, He's taking it over. He's running New York, pretty much runs all of his rivals out of business. He's the one who gets, like, the first big TV contracts. And so, you know, people who are watching the first TV, if they're watching television, they're probably watching wrestling, and they're 100%, because it's all based in New York, watching Vince McMahon wrestlers. They're watching Vince McMahon wrestlers. Uh, he has the WWWF, three W's, Worldwide Wrestling Federation, Worldwide Wrestling Federation, the WWWF. Um, his champion is a guy by the name of Bruno San Martino. Bruno San Martino uh, was probably the first ethnic wrestler not to be a gimmick and not to be like a stereotype. Uh, Bruno San Martino is a Italian man, the the Italian the Italian um, you know strongman type thing. Uh, he is the champion of the WWWF for forever. For forever, like I'm talking like decade, Bruno San Martino is the champion. He's this like kind of Italian figure, originally from I think Pittsburgh. But he, you know, he fights for the World Wrestling Feder, the Worldwide Wrestling Federation. Um, Vince McMahon, I should say, he's very old school as a promoter. He never appears on screen. He never appears on screen. He's never in the, um, you know, he's never really on the show. He's not really the attraction. He'll he'll do promotion and PR for Bruno San Martino, but he won't really, you know, he won't be the star of the show. He never appeals on on the screen. And so as the as we get into the seventies, uh, you know, wrestling is still continuing. It's still getting pretty popular. The NWA is the dominant form. Um, you know, it, it's still very regionalized. Absolutely. Uh, however, by the time we get to the early 80s, a new wrestler had signed with the WWWF. If you go over one slide, you will see a very, very young Hulk Hogan. You're going to see a very, very young Hulk Hogan. Um, Hulk Hogan, real name Terry Bollea, uh, who's like, I think, Italian ancestry. He tried to be a professional baseball player, but it didn't work out. So instead, he becomes a wrestler, uh, gets his name, name, name changed to Hulk Hogan. He was going to be another ethnic wrestler. Supposedly, he was supposed to be the Irish wrestler. Uh, McMahon does not know what to do with him. McMahon does not know what to do with him. He's he's clearly charismatic. He's a very good body, they say. Body is just like physique. He's tall. He's got big muscles, long blonde hair. They think he's going to be that. Um, however, Vincent J. McMahon has no idea what to do with him. Vince McMahon has no idea what to do with him. Sorry, Vincent McMahon has no idea what to do with him. Uh, doesn't really promote him as much as he feels. Hogan says, hey, I'm going to do this new um, movie called Rocky Three." Uh, he's going to be in Rocky Three, which is a Rocky movie with Sylvester Stallone. If you've ever seen Rocky Three, it's at the beginning where Hulk Hogan plays Thunderlips. Uh, Vince McMahon does not approve of this. Vincent, sorry, Vincent McMahon. Uh, trust me, it's going to become more confusing in a second. 
Vincent J. McMahon does not agree with this. He doesn't think that wrestlers should improve. It should be in movies. Uh, he doesn't want to do anything that might insinuate that wrestling is fake or acting. Hogan leaves uh, the WWF, and he actually ends up going to another promotion, a rival promotion around Minnesota. Uh, don't worry, he's going to come back. He's going to come back. So now we get into the 1980s. So in 1980, uh, Vince's son, also named Vince, Vincent McMahon's son, uh, Vince Jr., so Vince Sr., Vince Jr., uh, Vincent K. McMahon, as opposed to Vincent J. McMahon, uh, the K stands for Kennedy, uh, Vince Jr. basically uh, makes his own promotion and buys the WWF from his dad. He buys it from his dad. Uh, basically, I should also mention Vince, Vince McMahon Sr. His dad was also a wrestling promoter, uh, Jess McMahon. So you have three generations, now we're up to like four or five generations of the McMahon family of wrestling carny promoter. Wrestling carny promoter. Uh, basically, he reform. He buys the wrestling promotion from his dad. Uh, I should mention Vince McMahon Jr. does not have much of a relationship with his dad growing up. Apparently, um, Vince, okay, Vince Jr.'s mom was never married to Vincent Sr. And apparently, until he was like eighteen, he didn't know who his dad was. I mean, he knew he was Vince Jr., but he never met his dad until he was like eighteen. Uh, gets involved into the business. Apparently, he grew up in a trailer. Uh, Vince Jr. grew up in a trailer with his mom. Gets involved with the business and basically ends up buying out his dad. Ends up buying out his stand. Rebrands his promotion, the WWF. It's still around as the WWE. It's still around as the WWE, so it's a much older promotion. However, uh, in its modern incarnation, it is done by Vince McMahon. Vince McMahon, who I'm probably just going to call Vince McMahon the rest of the time, but I'm talking about Vince Jr., now Vince Jr. Uh, one of the first things he does is he resigns. Hulk, he resigns Hulk Hogan. He resigns, not resigns. Opposite. He gets Hulk Hogan back. He's like Hulk Hogan. I want you to be the biggest star. I want you to be the biggest star in all of uh, of all of wrestling. He's like, I'm going to promote you to the moon. I should also mention he buys. If you go over one slide, he buys the company with his wife Linda. Uh, Linda McMahon, super, super, super involved. Super involved with the wrestling business. Um, she's of a higher class than Vince McMahon is. Basically, she is of kind of like older money. Uh, still, well, not until now, because that changed. Uh, still very involved in the company, basically, along with the finance side. Uh, weirdly enough, they meet at a Bible study, which is kind of weird, considering what ends up happening with professional wrestling. But the McMahon family, uh, Linda and Vince, they meet in Bible study when they're very young. And so whenever he buys his dad's company, she kind of comes on as like a financial person. And they ultimately do have kids. So it's interesting, in 1983, the McMahons leave the W. Sorry, the WWF leaves the NWA. The NWA, basically, Vince McMahon claims it's stifling them. We can do better independently. Basically, Vince McMahon says, you know what, the NWA, we've been together for forever, you know, doing this New York Territory stuff. I think I can strike out on my own. I think I can make my own television deals. I could do whatever I want. And it's a very tall order. Oh, I, I should also mention, I should also mention, um, on the show, if you go over one slide, you'll see Vince McMahon's job. Uh, for the most time, Vince McMahon was not an on-screen character. However, audiences knew him because he was the announcer. Uh, Vince McMahon was 100% the straight man announcer. He was not a character. He pretty much, nobody, it wasn't really common knowledge among television audiences that he was the boss of the company. He was just seen as the announcer. Uh, you'll see him with uh, another one of his uh, favorite wrestlers, one of the uh, real 
titans of the 80s for wrestling, Andre the Giant. Uh, Andre the Giant promoted as the, uh, what, the eighth wonder of the world. Uh, he was a French man who had like a pituitary gland issue that made him like really, really big. Uh, Vincent Mann claimed he was like eight feet tall and, you know, 5,000 pounds type of shtick. 100% P.T. Barnum Carney stuff. Uh, in reality, Andre the Giant was like seven foot four or something. He was he was like in seven feet. Uh, the sad thing about Andre the Giant is that whenever he was young, like they like look, you know, you, you've got this issue. We could cure it. We can give you some drugs and a surgery that's gonna you know stunt your growth. But I mean, you're still gonna be a big person, but you're not gonna be like very big because this thing you never stop making growth hormone. It's gonna kill you. Like you're gonna die very young. And apparently Andre the Giant, whenever he's like a teenager, is like, no, I'd rather live short and like have a really cool life and, you know, and, st- and show biz. And that's basically Andre the Giant. He's kind of a holdover from the older from the uh, older days with Vincent K. McMahon. But Vince McMahon kind of keeps him on as kind of this big shizo attraction. Uh, Vince McMahon is very interested in, in big dudes. That has always been Vince McMahon's kind of shtick. Now, when Vince McMahon leaves the NWA, it's a bit of a tall order. It's a bit of a tall order. Thanks, in fact, if you go over one slide, the, the, the NWA is white hot at this time period. Uh, the NWA is white hot thanks to its biggest star. Uh, if you look over the left, there is the Nature Boy, sorry, on the right, Nature Boy Ric Flair. Nature Boy Ric Flair, who is still alive and still wrestling, even though he's had like several retirement matches now, it's carny shtick. It's carny shtick. Uh, never trust anything a wrestler promoter or pro wrestler says. Now, the NWA this time period has become a lot less cartoonish. Um, they, they try to claim that it's real. Like, people who watch wrestling this time period, they're like, oh, you know, that, that WWF stuff, that's fake, but, but NWA is real. You know, they, they, they're a lot less cartoonish. Um, you know, they, they, they really try to keep up more kayfabe in their matches. Um, I, I should also mention that it is very much a um, southern thing. Uh, the NWA now becomes seen seen as centered around um, like you know Atlanta or the South. That's where they claim the biggest draws in wrestling are. The biggest house shows are in uh, the South. Uh, primo example for the longest time, the biggest wrestling show of the year uh, for Mid South wrestling, where there's a lot of different territories, was the day after Thanksgiving in New Orleans. Uh, that was like when all everything ended up was the day after Thanksgiving in New Orleans. That's where everything happened. Now Ric Flair is a as a heel. He is a heel. He's the bad guy wrestler. He's the bad guy wrestler. Uh, he comes in being all cocky. You know, he's a wheeling, dealing, you know, jet flying, son of a gun. Uh, he's this whole shtick where he kind of cheats the win. Uh, he he often like you know fake being weak. He's like, oh, don't hit me. And then he'll like do a do a low blow, punching somebody in the groin. That sort of shtick behind him. Uh, to make it interesting, uh, the WWF is definitely a a promotion that was centered around its faces, somebody like a, a Hulk Hogan. Uh, the NWA is somebody that is a promotion that is centered around its heels. Uh, they really push this idea of, like, who is going to fight Ric Flair and win? This idea that, you know, who's going to beat up the bad guy? And the guy who beats up the bad guy for the longest time, or tries to, if you go over one slide, is Dusty Rhodes. See on the first one as well. The American Dream, Dusty Rhodes. The American Dream, Dusty Rhodes. He talk like this, daddy. Man, the American Dream. Okay, that's me talking a very, very horrible Dusty Rhodes impression. Uh, Dusty Rhodes, he, he claims, well, he is the son of a plumber. He calls himself the American Dream. If you click on the YouTube link, you'll see one of his most famous promos where he talks about hard times. Where he basically says, like, you know, I'm the everyman wrestler. I'm a blue-collar guy. You know, I've lived through hard times. I've lived through, like, missing meals and getting my job replaced by a computer 
Like, uh, you know, but this other guy calls me Hard Tribes. He's being this very blue collar, um, you know, son of a plumber. You know, can he beat up the the fancy uh, Ric Flair? And so for years, it would be Dusty Rhodes trying to beat up Ric Flair. Of course, Dusty Rhodes would get the crap cut out of him and the crap bled out of him. Oh, I should also mention, uh, bleeding and wrestling, that is real blood. That is real blood. Uh, Generally what they do, they take little razor blades and they cut themselves on the forehead. And that is where blood comes from because your face has a lot of blood. Um, I guess I could mention this. I I have a weird connection to professional wrestling, personally. Um, Not when I'm a young man, but whenever I'm older... Uh, my best friend in college, his dad was a professional wrestler. My best friend in college, his dad was a professional wrestler. Not a very big one, but um, he was a professional wrestler. Also, a much bigger professional wrestler. Um, son went to my college as well. That'd be uh, the Million Dollar Med, Ted DiBiase. Uh, his son was went to college with me, so go figure. Actually, his son was in pro wrestling for a while, too. Uh, Teddy DiBiase. He was Ted DiBiase Jr. for a while in the WWF. Now, the funny thing about Dusty Rhodes is, like, you know, all the while, while, like, audiences want to see, like, is he ever going to win? And eventually he does win, but it takes years, and it's, like, this big celebration, and he loses it shortly thereafter because of dastardly Ric Flair. What audiences don't know is that Dusty Rhodes is actually the guy behind booking the matches. Like, Dustin Ro- Dusty Rhodes, he's the one who is behind the booking. He's the one who's setting up who wins and who loses. So for years, Dusty Rhodes books himself to lose. Like, he knows that, like, him winning is not what's interesting. You know, what's interesting is him almost getting there, almost beating the, you know, the dastardly Ric Flair. And so audiences don't know that. They think, oh, my God, this poor guy, the son of the plumber. And remember, everybody thinks it's real. Well, they think it's more real than the WWF. The WWF, it's, it's crazy, colorful, ethnic stereotypes. Everybody knows, like, this can't be real. you got all sorts of crazy crap running around. Uh, there's a sense, though, that among wrestling fans that, um, you know, is it re- if anything is real, the NWA is real. Uh, I was too young to know the high days of the NWA, but I remember people who thought NWA wrestling was real, just in hindsight. Uh, people who thought that, you know, Ric Flair really was that tough because he could beat up all these people and, and poor Dusty Rhodes, that sort of shtick. But they're talking mainly in the retrospect. So the NWA is very popular. It's got the establishment. It's got all these territories. It's got the TV deals. And McMahon has a very uphill battle. You know, he's trying to get television, and he's not really getting it. The NWA has, you know, done a pretty good job of booking everything and, like, you know, having no compete clauses with, uh, with the television stations they get those deals with. And so McMahon does have an uphill battle. Like, yeah, um, you know, he does have Hulk Hogan. And, and Hulk Hogan is a very big-time wrestler in this time period. He really uh, epitomizes American masculinity. He really epitomizes American masculinity. Um... Yeah, very much like a 1980s mentality when you talk about like things like Ronald Reagan, this idea that you know Hulk Hogan is the real American. That's his music. I'm a real American. Uh, you know, he's fighting all these various um, ethnic stereotypes that we're going to get into. Absolutely, but like it really embodies this kind of like pro masculinity, uh, jingoistic American identity that comes during the 1980s. It's kind of like. Ronald Reagan-style America aboard again after being caught down. So even though Hogan is popular, and there's a host of other characters who are somewhat popular, uh, McMahon feels like he needs to make a really big splash. He needs to make a really big splash, basically get his promotion so much attention that it can't be ignored. And so in 1985, he does it by mortgaging everything he has. Like, I don't think he realizes this. Like, Vince McMahon puts up everything he has 
to make WrestleMania for the first time. It, he pitches this as like the Super Bowl of pro wrestling, like to get crossover appeal. Like I should mention, wrestling is the most popular in like the 1950s. By the time we get to the 80s, wrestling is not as big outside of very, very, very devout fans. So instead of going for like realism, he goes for flash. He goes for glitz and glamour. If you go over one slide, you'll see like the starting lineup of the original WrestleMania. Uh, you got Hulk Hogan there along with Liberace. Uh, Liberace, if you don't know who Liberace is, he is a very flamboyant pianist from the 80s. He played piano and he was super gay, even though people in the 50s didn't realize he was gay, but good God, he was flashy. Uh, he was a, he was he basically shows up to do things. Uh, Sydney Lauper, Sydney Lauper is there. Sydney Lauper, uh, she of girls who want to have fun. She does a lot of stuff with pro wrestling in this time period. Uh, Captain Lou Albano plays, who's a pro wrestler, plays her dad, and the girls just want to have fun. Video. Uh, Muhammad Ali is the timekeeper. Uh, he's the timekeeper. Liberace just does uh, the national anthem and then like does can can with chorus girls. Then you have Muhammad Ali serving as the timekeeper. Uh, the, the the match itself has uh, has Mr. T, Mr. T, you know, Mr. T, he pities fools. Uh, Mr. T had been a somewhat pro wrestler, much better known now from the A-Team and also from the Rocky movie. And now he and Hulk Hogan are tagging together against the dastardly evil pro wrestlers. And this was a hit. This was a hit. Uh, it was done as closed circuit. So basically you had to go to a movie theater. You had to go to a movie theater to get it. Uh, this was not done pay-per-view yet. It was not done pay-per-view yet. It's about to become pay-per-view, but uh, the first WrestleMania was a pretty—it was a pretty modest success. They—they they try to do another one. Uh, the second WrestleMania is a dud. The second WrestleMania, they go too ambitious. Uh, instead of having it in one place, they're like, "We're going to do three different arenas at the same time, do satellite broadcast." It doesn't work. It's really the third WrestleMania that really cements it as like, "Okay, this is something, and it's going to be very pop cultural." Um, this is the one that is the first one on really pay-per-view. And it's also like the defining moment when Hulk Hogan fights Andre the Giant. Um, Andre the Giant, by this time, he is a holdover from much, much older days of wrestling. He's also not very mobile by this time period. Uh, the whole disease that he was told he was going to have really starts racking his body. Uh, he's, he's falling apart by this time. I should also mention they had both been faces throughout their career. Throughout their career, they had both been good guy wrestlers. And so now Hulk Hogan is going to face Andre the Giant. They had been friends before, but then you know Andre the Giant turns on Hulk Hogan, and it gets a lot of, a lot, a lot of mainstream attention. It gets a lot of mainstream attention. Uh, the, the climax of all of WrestleMania is when Hulk Hogan picks up Andre the Giant uh, and body slams him. You know, the, the fact that this guy who is... I mean, yeah, he's promoted as being like, you know, 7,000 pounds, but he's, he's Andre the Giant is legitimately over 400 pounds, probably closer to five. Uh, you know, Hulk Hogan literally does pick him up. He literally does body slam him. And the 100,000 at the Pontiac Silverdome go crazy. Um, it's in Detroit at the Pontiac Silverdome. Uh, for the longest time, it is the largest indoor crowd for anything ever in U.S. history. Like, it's the largest indoor crowd for anything in U.S. history. Um, until relatively recently, whenever actually another WrestleMania, whenever 100,000 people are at that. For an indoor arena, it's the largest thing ever to happen. Hulk Hogan does it. And so this really cements Hulk Hogan as like this kind of like jingoistic uh, America personified. I mean, the fact that Hulk Hogan, for the longest time, his intro music is I Am a Real American. And uh, I, I should mention, he is a face wrestler, but he uses heel tactics sometimes. Like he'll do an eye poke, he'll do, he'll do things. 
that are theoretically something heels do, but because he's America, it's not seen as heel behavior. And you can, I mean, I want you to expand upon that if you get this for in the quiz about how this kind of exemplifies parts of the 80s, this idea that, you know, America can do no wrong. If America does it, there's nothing wrong that happens to it. It also is reflected with the type of people that Hulk Hogan fight. If you go over one slide, you're going to see classy Freddie Blassie, who is still alive and promoting in the 80s, with two of Hulk Hogan's most famous foes, Nikolai Volkov and the Iron Sheik. The Iron Sheik and Nikolai Volkov, who theoretically represent the USSR and uh, Iran and Iran. Theoretically, that's the bad guys. Uh, they're the people that he fights. Nikolai Volkov theoretically you know, represented the USSR. He was the Soviets. And, you know, he would do things like he'd come out and be like, USA zero, you know, uh, Russia number one. He would sing the Russian national anthem. And then, you know, Hulk Hogan would come out and beat him up with an American flag and USA, USA. Uh, the Iron Sheik, as I said, theoretically represented Iran. He was the one who's like, you know, Iran number one, USA number zero. He would come out and, you know, do things, talk about how Iran is so great and, you know, the Ayatollah is wonderful and hooray for the Iranian revolution. And here's the ironic thing. You know, and of course, Hulk Hogan would come out and beat him up as well. That, that always happens. The ironic thing is Nikolai Volkov, in reality, was not Russian. He was Croatian. And he flees Croatia because he hates the Soviets. He hates communism. He's one of these uh, political refugees. Oddly enough, same thing with the Iron Sheik. Uh, the Iron Sheik is also an Iranian refugee who comes from Iran after the Iranian Revolution. He does not like the Iranian revolutionaries. Um, he had been tied to the Shah of Iran earlier on. But to get money, they pretend, nope, we hate America, and even though in reality they are immigrants who come to America because they are political refugees. And, of course, Hulk Hogan's going to come out and beat the crap out of them. Absolutely. And so the 80s, they're known for tons of promotional materials for wrestling. You know, wrestling after this gets much bigger. The WWF gets much bigger. WrestleMania becomes a legitimate cultural force. Uh, the gamble seems to work for McMahon. But McMahon does seem to stay behind the scenes. McMahon is staying behind the scenes, uh, mainly as the announcer. Him being an owner is not exactly common knowledge. Uh, this seems to be kind of the same in the 1990s. Uh, that's when Ric Flair even leaves the NWA to join the WWF. Um, you know, wrestlers going from one promotion to another is nothing new. But things are about to change. And now we get to the Monday Night Wars. If you're on one slide, you're going to see Ted Turner. Now, TV is getting McMahon rich. It's getting McMahon rich, and it's getting the TV people even richer. Like, you know, yes, McMahon is getting money off of his cable TV contracts, but the people who own the cable TV companies are also getting rich. One of them, one, the guy who owns more t cable TV companies than anybody else still to this day is Ted Turner. Uh, there's Ted Turner based in Atlanta, the TBS Superstation. Pretty much every channel is based in for with Ted Turner. Uh, Ted Turner, like I said, he's based in Atlanta. He has numerous, and I do mean numerous, cable channels that get help from wrestling. Primarily NWA. Primarily NWA wrestling. Now, in 1988, he's like, you know what? Um, it's nice splitting this money, but I know that professional wrestling is a really big moneymaker, and I'm a billionaire. I can buy whatever the hell I want. So he buys the Atlanta Territory from Jim Crockett in 1988. In 1988, he buys one of the territories. He buys one of the territories, um, the Atlanta Territory. It's theoretically not all NWA. He buys the Atlanta Territory from Jim Crockett, who had been the longtime runner of the Atlanta Territory. And he renames it WCW, World Class Wrestling. World Class Wrestling. 
And at first, it's not very big. He's like, look, I have more ownership of it, but eh, who cares? Whatever. Uh, It's not very big at first. So not very big at first. Uh, The problem is, there is a big scandal in the WWE. Uh, by, by the WWF. Sorry, I'm going to call them universe. I'm going to exchange them, but they're the same thing. With Vince McMahon's company. Uh, there's a very nasty steroid scandal that comes out. Basically, uh, Vince McMahon is forced to testify in front of Congress about steroids within these pro wrestlers. Um, you know, he says, oh, you know, I don't, I don't force people to take steroids, but, uh, you know, but then they're like, but we, we have evidence that if, you know, wrestlers didn't take steroids, they, uh, they would get fired. And, you know, you also provide steroids for them. You, you get them steroids, that sort of shtick. It really ruins his reputation. <clears throat> also, during his congressional testimony, he admits that the outcomes are predetermined, which, once again, anybody with two brain cells kind of figured that one out. But still, it's another thing to say it, you know, in front of Congress under oath. And money issues start coming. Money issues start coming uh, very quickly, very, very quickly. Money issues come. In 1994, Hulk Hogan leaves the WWF, sorry, the WWF, he leaves for WCW, because uh, very quickly, basically, Ted Turner's like, hey, you're having money problems, I'm a billionaire, I'm going to sign everybody for tons of money. So basically, um, Ted Turner starts poaching all sorts of WWF talent with massive checks, like big old checks, with big old checks, and he also starts his own weekly television show. Now, to be fair, the WWF also had their weekly own weekly television show. The WCW has one. This begins the so-called Monday Night Wars because they were both on at Monday night at the same time. They're both on with Monday night at the same time. It's basically two guys competing with each other to get the audience base. And theoretically, this is when professional wrestling is at its zenith. It's definitely at its most popular. If you watch videos of you know Monday Night Wrestling during this time period, it is super huge. You have big crowds, big money, big everything. And basically, from about 1995 to 2001, both promotions are pulling out all the stops. They're pulling out all the stops. They're trying to get audiences. They do all sorts of crazy things. At first, it's the WCW. WCW is winning. Uh, They have the biggest checks. They have the most money they can pull from. Uh, They have a good selection of cruiserweights. Uh, Cruiserweights are lighter wrestlers. Uh, Early on, WCW says, hey, you know what? Maybe people might like to watch, like, more acrobatic wrestlers who are, like, you know, lighter weight. They can jump around. They can bounce off the rings more. They're not these big, plodding guys. So they start bringing in, like, more luchadors. That's Mexican professional wrestlers. uh, Japanese pro wrestlers who are also a little bit lighter. But for the longest time, the WCW has ultimate trump card. If you go over one slide, the NWO. The NWO, in 1996, they make Hulk Hogan a bad guy, something that Hulk Hogan had never been throughout his entire time in the WWF. Uh, They make him a bad guy. This is a huge rating boom. Um, I have a video clip right there of basically whenever Hulk Hogan does indeed turn bad, that's a big old, oh, that's a big old kerfuffle, absolutely, that, oh, my gosh, they've made Hulk Hogan bad. And he comes in with two other wrestlers that are former WWF wrestlers to the WCW. They start, you know, doing all sorts of bad guy stuff. And the WWF really cannot compete. They really cannot compete. Uh, their champion at the time is a guy by the name of Bret Hart, also still alive, who's a Canadian guy. Uh, very good technical wrestler. Uh, Bret Hart comes from a very long family of professional wrestlers. His dad, Stu Hart, is probably like the most famous wrestler trainer of all time. 
but not a very good character. Very good technical wrestler, not a very good character, not the best talker on Earth. Uh, he cannot compete with the colorful cartoons that is going on. Likewise, their rocker, their locker room at WCW is getting depleted. It is getting depleted. It is just basically anybody who can wrestle or is popular is getting paid a lot more money to actually work less. Uh, that's another thing. Uh, most the WWF and most wrestling promotions are like traveling road shows. So wrestlers are always touring. They're always going. They're not just doing the televised shows, but they're also doing house shows, which are not televised. Uh, basically, WCW is offering wrestlers, and I should say with the WWF, oftentimes wrestlers are on the road over 200 days a year, which can be very hard to like have a family or like have healthy, healthy life balances. Honestly, for a lot of wrestlers, it's 300 days a year. You might get you know a day or two off a week before you're back on the road. WCW is offering wrestlers a chance to like you only wrestle like once or twice a week. You're off more than you're on, and you're getting paid more more money. Most wrestlers can't they can't they can't say no to that. They can't say no to that. So the mentality does change. If you go over one slide with the Montreal screw job, which really skews the line of kayfabe and you know what's real and what's not real. Is this a work? Is it a shoot? Here's, here's the real story. So basically, Bret Hart, who had been the WCW, sorry, the WWF champion, says basically, hey, um, I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave. Even though I am champion, I want to go to WCW. And Vincent Mann doesn't want him going to WCW with the title. Uh, Doesn't want him going to go with the title. Doesn't want him leaving as champion. But he does promise Bret Hart, look, you know, I don't want you to lose, you know, I'm a man of my word. I'm paying you good money. And Bret Hart's like, look, I don't want to lose this match. I'm in Montreal. It's it's my, you know, I'm from Canada. It's it's my hometown. Um, you know, l- let me win, and then I'll, I'll I'll give the title up. Basically, says, look, I'm going to win the match, and then I'll secede the title. I'll basically be like, look, I give up the title. I'm leaving. Uh, he's not going to make a big deal out of it. He's not going to like you know show, you know, he's not going to throw it into a garbage can or burn it like the women's champion did whenever she left WWF to go to WCW. And so basically, basically, Vincent Mann's like, okay, cool. You know, I'll let you win the match. Basically, you're going to win. And then as soon as the match is over, you give up the title. But that's not what happened. Because the referee, Earl Hebner, who was in on the fix, basically they get to the end of the match. And basically, the ref claims, oh, my God, Bret Hart tapped out. The other guy won. The other guy being Shawn Michaels, who you don't really need to know. This makes Bret Hart furious. And this is where the lines of kayfabe are blurred. Because Bret Hart, as you can tell after the match, he's legitimately upset. He's legitimately upset. This is not an act. He is furious. Um, apparently, legitimately afterwards, he went he went into the locker room to find Vince McMahon and uh, punched him. Legitimately. Legitimately punched him in the face afterwards for real. When word of this gets out, all of a sudden, Vince McMahon becomes an on-screen character. Uh, he does an interview on the TV show afterwards. So it's really the, the birth of this new character. If you go over one slide of Mr. McMahon. The evil money grubbing, you know, owner of WC of WWF. He claims that look, I didn't screw over Brett. It's called the Montreal screw job because you know you screw over Brett. And Vince McMahon says, I, I didn't screw over Brett. Brett screwed Brett. You know, he just didn't fight hard enough. That sort of shtick. This now becomes the character. This now becomes the main interest. Of, oh my gosh, there's this rich personality who's legitimately messing people over. He's legitimately messing people over, and this gives a level of kayfabe blurring. Like, what is real, what is fake? And of course, you need somebody to to play off of. 
And so he gets two big personalities. If you ever slide, you get the two biggest personalities that come out of WWF during this time period. Uh, Steve Austin on the right, Stone Cold Steve Austin. He's actually a former WCW person who never really cut it big. Basically, WCW didn't see a lot of, uh, not only a lot of, you know, traction in his character, so they let him go. And he kind of plays into this anti-hero persona, uh, starts, you know, publicly feuding with Vince McMahon. Uh, his whole his whole catchphrase, Austin 316, is, uh, he's ripping off John 316. He's like, you know, basically the character he beats, um, Jake the Snake, who, another wrestling character, who was like a religious person in this time period. It's like, you're talking, you know, John 316, Austin 316, I just whooped your ass. And that becomes like the biggest the biggest thing for wrestling theoretically to this time, he's the biggest wrestler to ever be in times of, uh, times of, uh, in terms of crowd reaction, Stone Cold Steve Austin. And of course he's fighting against, you know, Vince McMahon, this idea that, you know, Vince McMahon's trying to fire, trying to fire him. Uh, he's getting his family more involved. He's like, look, this is nepotism. You know, I'm going to bring my son and my wife and my daughter because I'm Vince McMahon and I'm a rich guy. I'm a childish billionaire. I yell your fire. Uh, he's a pretty big draw. And, of course, Vince kind of needs a, somebody to protect him, to fight for him. So you get Dwayne Johnson, better known as The Rock. Uh, Dwayne Johnson's kind of interesting. He comes in as a face. He comes in as a face. He's a third-generation wrestler. Um, his father, Rocky Johnson, was a wrestler. His grandfather on his mother's side, High Chief Peter Maivia, he's a wrestler. And so he comes in as a face. He comes in as, like, this happy guy. He's just happy to be wrestling. And then, uh, you know, he's, he's this happy dude, and the crowd hates him. The crowd hates him. And then people start hating him even more when they're like, okay, you're going to join this new heel faction, the Afrocentric Nation of Domination. They're called the Nation of Domination. They're basically, like, you know, defiantly, you know, black power type people. And then people t- like hating him because they start giving The Rock a microphone, and he gets really big into this character. He starts really insulting people. So he becomes like a fun bad guy wrestler, and people like rooting for him. Meanwhile, you know, Stone Cold is kind of this anti-hero because he, he is a face, but he's like one who like really does all sorts of evil things. Meanwhile, WCW is starting to uh, suffer from NWO fatigue. They become too stunt heavy. Uh, they start bringing in like you know bigger name celebrities to do stuff. Um, they, for instance, they bring in Master P, which is kind of interesting. Master P, the rapper, comes in, and then uh, later on. They bring in uh, Master P to be basically a good guy wrestler, but then the crowd boos him because the people that are supposed to boo, if you go over one side, you'll see the West Texas Rednecks who have a country, a, a very, very earworm of a song. It's catchy as all hell called Rap is Crap, basically saying their rap is awful. It's going to be a bad guy wrestler move, but then the crowd starts cheering them, and so they kind of become faces. It's kind of interesting. But it basically shows that the WCW is reeking of desperation, and so they started to get more people back. Uh, with Austin and The Rock causing viewers, McMahon is starting to look into expanding. Um, he also starts getting super crass in his wrestling. Uh, I should mention a lot of times the you know Monday Night Raw turns into just like skits and like uh, a lot of like boobage, a lot of like you know talking about like you know breast and you know just like. Uh, telling people to suck it and um, like very, very immature stuff. Uh, Theoretically, basically people claim that he's just going to the lowest common denominator. And and then he brings in a Thursday night show and then WCW brings in a Thursday night show as well. Um, The way he does try to expand, which is kind of ironic how this ends up happening is in 2001, he says, you know what? I'm going to start out my own football league. 
the XFL, which weirdly enough came back like a year or two ago and I think is gone again. But theoretically, um, he does the XFL, which is like, I want a more extreme football league. Uh, doesn't work very well because the on-field product is not very good. Um, all the rules they bring in mainly end up in more people getting hurt. And even by the third week of the XFL, he's already doing stunts like, we're going to bring cameras into the, you know, to the cheerleaders' dressing room type of shtick. Absolutely. However, he kind of like lowers the bar as far as he can, ha- can take it. And by 2001, later in 2001, uh, WCW is bought out by Vince McMahon, the- just ending the war. Basically, WCW is bought out by Vince McMahon. Uh, he poaches what wrestlers he wants. Uh, Ted Turner kind of gets out of the wrestling business. He's still very much in the, um, you know, putting wrestling on his television business. However, he just really didn't, you know, he didn't want to, like, roll in mud with McMahon. And after a while, just got really too expensive to keep up. And so Ted Turner kind of gets rid of it. It's actually not until relatively recently in the past couple years that actually another wrestling show is back on Ted Turner's TV channels, that'd be AEW Wrestling, which we're not going to get into. Now, the interesting thing about Vince McMahon, if you go over one slide, you will see um, him and Donald Trump because they do know each other. Uh, Several of the first WrestleManias were at Trump Casinos. They hosted it. Uh, Donald Trump and Vince McMahon once did a billionaire versus billionaire fight at at WrestleMania where whoever loses got their head shaved. Spoiler alert, it wasn't Trump, it was it was it was Vince McMahon. Um, if you click there's a little video link there if you can see it, uh, where basically it shows uh, <laughs> Donald Trump punching Vince McMahon at WrestleMania, which is just kind of interesting. This is long before he's president, by the way, of course, is long before he's president. But a lot of Donald Trump's like persona, particularly from the apprentice TV show, really comes from Vince McMahon. The idea of, like, yelling, you're fired. Uh, even though Trump tried to copyright that, that is 100% a Vince McMahon thing that he's pretty much took. And it's interesting. Uh, Donald Trump is in the WWE Hall of Fame as like a, as, a, as a character. There's a wrestling Hall of Fame for the WWF, WWE, Vince McMahon. And uh, Donald Trump's in it. Yet, however, once Trump becomes president, the WWF doesn't, WWE really doesn't talk about him. Uh, they feel he's too vi- divisive of a figure. Now, this is the coda to all this. Um... I would typically say that Vince McMahon is still around and in charge of WWE, but he's not. Uh, within the past couple of years, actually within the past year, not even the past couple of years, but in the past year, uh, it came out that Vince McMahon was doing stuff as head of WWF, that was not, or WWE, that was not very kosher, not very good. Um, he had had affairs with a lot of different women who were, who, who were his subordinates, which is a very big issue in terms of, like, um, you know, power. Uh, the idea of having an affair with somebody who you were their boss, that is definitely something that is understandably looked down upon. Um, apparently, he had had affairs on his wife, Linda, for forever. Um, apparently, I don't want to say they have an open marriage, but they had, like, an understanding. that Like, you know, she's like, look, as long as I don't see it, uh, you don't do it. I should also mention uh, Linda does run for uh, Senate. She does run for Senate early on. And actually not even early on. Um, I think it's 2014. She runs for Senate. <coughs> she be a senator of Connecticut. Uh, she does not win. She does not win. However, he does clean up the product to try to basically help out her Senate campaign. So apparently he and Linda do have an understanding about their marriage that basically, you know, they didn't do that. Uh, it does come out he's having a lot of affairs. Uh, what does come out is not just the affairs, but also that he is using investor money, like money from the company, to pay off the women for like hush contracts. 
So basically, he's having affairs with people and then like having them sign NDAs and paying them with company money, which is a textbook example of fraud because he's not telling investors. He's telling investors these are just expenses. Uh, WWE is a publicly traded company. Um, if you have a publicly traded company, you have to be honest with investors about what things are being spent for. And when you're spending millions of dollars of company money to pay off your mistresses so they don't talk, that's fraud. And so basically to appease investors, uh, he leaves. He leaves the company, which he is gone, gone. Like, they really get rid of him. Now, are we done with the McMahon family? No. Um, his daughter, Stephanie, is uh, co-CEO now of the WWE. Uh, she married another wrestler by the name of Triple H. He's now, like, the head of, he's the president of, like, talent relations. And so even though Vince McMahon, who, by the way, now is, like, close to 80, he's not an active role in wrestling anymore, it does loom large. And, and you could argue that, you know, pro wrestling doesn't just influence, like, the 1980s with Reagan stuff, but also you could argue, it's not even a hard argument, it does kind of influence Trump in the way that politics gets shown in that. With that said, so this is, hopefully this is a shorter one. Um, yeah. All right. Dr. Tully for History 302. Tony, you have a good one.